And Revelation is enlarged. It's a revelation of the risen Jesus. And you see the descriptions that we covered about Jesus or that we read through um, in chapter 1. There's a lot of descriptors, like just really creative descriptions of the risen Jesus. And if, as you're, if you remember those at all, you'll see those showing up again here in the letters to the seven churches. Now, one note about the seven churches, and I, I believe I'm correct in saying that this is one letter, but it's written to seven churches. So it's not just seven different letters that went out to one, one to Sardis, one to Thyatira, but it was one letter, and I think they were probably circulated throughout all of these churches. <clears throat> now, there's, as soon as you read, as soon as you see or you read through chapters 2 and 3, there's some questions that come to your mind if you're anything like me. Um, one of them is, why seven churches? If you'd look on a map, and I didn't get a picture um, that quite worked, I guess, but on a map, if you look at these seven churches, they're actually in fairly close proximity to each other in Asia Minor. Um, most of them, I believe, would be in present-day Turkey. But there's other churches, even um, I think it's Colossae, and Corinth that are not far from where these are. So why just the seven? Why not all of them? Well, if you're a, I don't know what you call it, a mystical person or everything is a symbol of something. You know, you can go down that that trail in, in Revelation for sure where everything is a symbol of something. But I do believe what you'll see through Revelation is there's seven just throughout, throughout Revelation. As you, as you go through, if you, if you read through it sometime, look, look for it. If you go back to Genesis, there were seven days of creation. And as you go forward here in Revelation, there are seven seals, there are seven bowls of wrath, there are seven trumpets, there's the seven spirits, there's the seven angels, there's the seven churches, and on and on and on it goes. What I would propose to us today is simply that, and I believe Scripture would back it up, that it's seven represented just a completeness. There was something complete with, with that. And I think what I, would, what I propose to us today about these seven letters that are these seven um, churches that are written to here is that the, the message that is written to these seven churches is a message that rings true throughout all generations, throughout all time from these churches all the way through history, up until our time, and they're just as relevant to us today. And they cover, I would believe, the, um, everything. They, they kind of encapsulate or capture everything that the church has faced and everything that the church does face, even now. Um, and so hopefully, as we, as we look through that, and I don't know if you guys remember, probably within the last year, I think we went through these, these seven churches um, in our discipleship hour. I don't know if you guys remember that, but it's so hard, at least for me, it's, it's really hard. How do you just take a step back and get the big picture? What's the big picture message here without just diving into, in some ways it would be much easier just to dive into one at a time, just take a deep dive into each of them. Now, obviously, we can't do that here today. And so what I want to do this today here at the start is I want to read just one verse from, from each of the letters or from each part of the letter. Um, I want to read one, one verse, and then we're going to come back, and as we go through the message, we'll cover the other pieces. 
So you can follow along. You can just listen. It's up to you. The first, I'm going to read in Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 7. And he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jump down to verse 11. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Over to 17. I'm going to jump partway down in verse 17. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one except the one who receives no no one knows except the one who receives it. I'll jump all the way down to 26. To the one who conquers and who keeps my works works until the end, to him I will give authority over nations. Jump over to chapter 3. Verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name in the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Verse 12, to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven with my new name. And one more, verse 21, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I have conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So we're going to end with the one who conquers. That's where we'll end up. But as you read through, as you read through each part of this letter, to each one of these churches, I think you could break it down in in three general pieces. You have the speaker, the one who is bringing the message. He comes through loud and clear right at the start and then throughout as well. But then you have the message. And within that message, there's several messages. There's there's commendations that the the speaker, which is Jesus, there's commendations for some of the churches, for some of the things that they're doing. There's warnings listed and we're going to break, go through and just and, and try to summarize some of what that message is. And then he ends with a promise. And that's the, those are the verses that we have read. The promise is to those who conquer. So we're going to start with the message itself. And then we're going to come back to the speaker. And then we'll end with the promise. So I, I hope I hope you possibly maybe you took the time to read through each of these um, before today. And if not, that's fine because I'm just going to I'm going to reference pieces of the message to each one of these. And I'm, and for this part of it, I'm going to focus on what was written, the warning that was written. Um, there are two churches. One has a gentle warning, I suppose. Um, but I, I want to kind of summarize. The warnings that are written to the churches, and then I want us to ask the question about us. What is the message for providence today? What is the message that God has for us? And I think you can break down, or I, would, I tried to break down the message into three different pieces. One, you have those who have this self-sufficient, 
kind of a, a works-based, but a very self-sufficient attitude about who they are as a church. And you'll see those, if you, would, if you read through them sometime, you see that in Ephesus, you see it in Sardis, and then also in Laodicea. And I'll, I'll just point out briefly a few of those because they, they bring out a different piece of, of that self, self-sufficiency or that workspace kind of an attitude. <clears throat> and then I want you to notice, where is Jesus in those churches? Ephesus was obviously in a, it was in a very pagan environment, but Jesus commends them because they have held to the truth, they have endured patiently, They've done, they've done some of those things so well. They have rejected the work of the Nicolaitans, and we'll, we'll talk about them in a little bit. But he said they've missed one thing. They've missed one thing. So, so the church at Ephesus, I don't know. I think this is probably one that relates very, very well to us and, and to the culture that we've grown up in. They have held strongly to the doctrines of Scripture, they've held strongly to their beliefs without any kind of compromise. They have, they have drawn a rigid line, and they are not going to be budged. The world is not going to drag them into a place where they do not want to go into sin. They're not going to compromise at all. They're convinced. They're standing firm. That's a good thing, right? But God says, you've completely missed it. He said, you've missed because you have lost your first love. So hang on to that thought. And we, let, me, let me say this about, about works. I think we, we get this idea. We've grown up in a culture, if we're honest, that, is, that is, has a lot of works based in it. And we need to recognize that there is nothing in our works, and I think we do, I think we recognize it, that can save us. But do we get sucked into it in a different way? Can we? What about the church at Sardis? Let me just read you what I, what I wrote down about the church of Sardis. They have a reputation for being alive, Jesus says, but you are dead. This is a, the, there is an appearance of a church. This is an appearance of a church that has it all together. Those looking in would likely see a church that is well organized. It's a smooth running machine. It's a church that has all the right systems in place it has huge offerings. Its building is immaculate. It looks like things are thriving and going well. But Jesus says it's dead because they have stayed. Maybe we could call it, you could call it a shallow discipleship, a shallow Christianity. They've stayed on the surface and they've completely neglected the deeper work that needs to happen in each one of our lives. And I think if you take a little bit of a deeper look into the church of Sardis, I think there's a hint that the Holy Spirit has been suffocated out of their church life. There's no sign of a deep spiritual change. So, is this also, could this also be a works-based kind of church that we can fall into? Do you, follow where I'm, do you follow what I'm saying? We don't, we don't believe in just, we don't have to just stand the ground. We don't have to, oh, where do you go with this? You, you, you can't wear shorts. You got it. All those, all those little details, we, we know that. But we can fall into the same ditch just with a different 
with a different flavor, if you will, by trying to convince or trying to make it look like this church, we have got it all together, when in fact we don't. And we can, it can look like we do. It can look so good. And we can, make, we can make that happen on our own strength. But if we neglect the deeper issues of our heart, then I think Jesus is telling us that we're dead. <clears throat> Laodicea. This is a very familiar one. The lukewarm church. Here again, you, it, they say they're rich but they're poor. So they're, it's a very affluent society. It's a very affluent church. They've got it, what it looks like it, together. And I think the suggestion is that they have come to depend completely on their wealth and their own ability to function, and they've got it all together. They need nothing else. They don't need God in their midst, probably unawares. Their apparent wealth and prosperity has led them to spiritual apathy. Is there anything more dangerous in our spiritual lives than apathy? Think about, I, th- I think I've heard it say this way, what's the ob- is hate the opposite of love? Or is apathy the opposite of love? You see, or maybe you can use anger. If someone's anger, at least they're feeling something, they're alive. God can actually use that and work with that. But if we find ourselves in a place where we're of apathy, where we just flat out don't care, that's dead. There's no life there. And they have found themselves there because they have come to depend on their own selves. Life has been running smoothly. And so they are content with where they are in their spiritual lives. Now, those three, notice where Jesus is in them. And I, I mentioned it briefly about Sardis. If you, study, if you study the church at Sardis there, I believe the Holy Spirit has been squelched. And He is completely absent from their midst. Notice the church at Laodicea. Where is Jesus in that church? It says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's standing on the outside, knocking because he wants to come in. And the church at Ephesus, the first one that we started with, this whole idea of being workspace, but they've completely lost their first love. Do you know what Jesus says? He says, Be careful, or I'm going to come and remove the lampstand that is you, your church. The church is going to die it's going to be snuffed out. So hold on to all that you want. Do. Do the good things. I don't think Jesus is saying stop that. He actually commends him for that. But if we lose our love for our Savior in the midst of that, we're going to die. That's a theme that runs through all three of those churches, those churches that find themselves being self-sufficient. The next, next warning is the compromising church. So we have the self-sufficient church, we have the compromising church, and I'd point you to Pergamum and Thyatira in chapter 2. Those two churches, I think, would fit well into this category. These are churches that have been commended for their faith, and there are those who actually, within, within those churches, who died for their faith because of the persecution that they faced, and yet, perhaps because of that persecution, 
they had begun to compromise in an effort, to, I think, to make their lives a little bit easier. They talk about the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, which Jesus said he hates the, the teachings and the work of the Nicolaitans, and of Jezebel, the immoral, the immoral, the sexual immorality that is brought into the church. It says that they actually, they tolerate that kind of teaching. It's like they don't like it. We know we don't want it, but they tolerate and, and rather than raise a fuss. So I want, to think, I want us to think for us, for today in our culture, for Providence. What are the issues in our society where we're tempted to compromise? Think of, um, so the Nicolaitans, in just the simplest, simplest de- explanation I think of them is a people who said, go, you've got grace, go live what you want. Live however you please. It doesn't matter because grace covers it all. It's cheap grace. Do we see that creeping into our churches? Are those areas that we are tempted to compromise? Um, what about issues of gender, marriage, sexuality? All those things. And, and often, if we're honest, I think we, we always think those things are out there somewhere. They're not. They're right here. Those are things that are present in our people, in our circles. They're not just out there. And so how do we, how do we then engage those issues well and stand for the truth without compromising, but how do we engage those things well in our church? Think of other areas um, where we may be tempted to compromise. And the compromising comes because we don't want, we don't want to raise a ruckus. We don't want to raise a big deal. We just want to kind of float under the radar, if you will. And so we, we just go along with whatever comes. Then you have the last two churches, the churches that are threatened with persecution and death. Smyrna and Philadelphia, and you see those in chapter 2 and in chapter 3. Now, Smyrna is a church that is filled with people who are absolutely dirt poor. Notice it's the complete opposite of the church in um, Laodicea. They are poor, and yet Jesus says they are rich. What's, what, what's going on there? Why are they rich? But I think there's also, there's, a, there's an encouragement in the message to them because I think whether you are rich, like the Laodiceans, or whether you are poor and literally living in poverty, like the church at Smyrna, it's easy for us to take the circumstances that we find ourselves in and say, oh, well, either God is blessing me if I'm rich, or God is against me if I'm poor. And so Jesus encourages the, the ones who are literally poor, he encourages them to stand strong even in the face of death. The church in Philadelphia, it says this about them, that they are a church of little strength. said so they don't have much power. Perhaps a small church, I don't know. Perhaps it's speaking of, I think there's several, several things. I think it's referring, it refers to them, they, they recognize their weakness as people. 
They recognize their brokenness. But I also think it can refer to them as in their society, they had very little, if any, societal power or political power in their culture and in their world. And as I, I was thinking about that, and you look throughout history, I don't know, that, I don't know if there's a time and place where this isn't true, um, but for sure, the last 10, 20 years, the fastest growing churches, Iran and Afghanistan, places where the church has zero societal power. They're in many, many places, in many ways, they're underground because of the persecution. They have no political power at all, and yet there's something powerful in them that is spreading the gospel like wildfire. Where do we find ourselves? How are we trying, attempting to spread the message of God's love? So where do we as Providence fit into it this morning? Are we feeling good about our efforts at making church work, just making it work? Are we determined to make things work on our own? Are we looking for easy, non-confrontational way? Are we prepared to stand in the face of adversity? Are we going to compromise and accept and embrace false teaching as it pressures us? Are we focused on advancing the gospel through our weakness and brokenness, which causes us to depend more deeply on Jesus and actually offers grace to the world? There's one phrase that is repeated in every, to every one of the churches, and that is, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. What the Spirit says, not what Chris says, but what the Spirit says to us as a church. So as we listen, listen to the Spirit. And what is the message that Jesus is telling us, telling the, us today? <clears throat> but if it's true, if it's true that the message to these churches is relevant to all, throughout all time in history, and it's relevant to us today, then is it not equally relevant for us here at Providence today that what Jesus offers them, what Jesus offers each one of these churches is relevant to us today as well. And I want to, I want to spend the rest of the time focused on, on that. What does Jesus offer to each one of these churches in, their, in, the, in the ways that He commends them and in the warnings that He gives them? He offers them something. He offers them one thing, and it's Himself. He simply offers Himself to them. The risen Jesus steps through time and space, and He enters into the chaos and the dysfunction of the churches that are here in Revelation, and He steps through time and space, and He enters into our chaos, our dysfunction, our brokenness, our messiness, all of that. He steps into it, and He walks with us in that today. How does He do that? He comes to us as the I am. There's, there's three, three ways that I see Jesus coming to these churches. He says, I am. He says, I know and I promise. So I want to end with, with those three. Jesus says, I am. And I, here, here's something that in, in your free time, free time, who is free time, right? Seriously. 
Um, but sometime, read through, th- through these, these two chapters and see if you can draw the connection between the message that is written to each individual church and how e. Jesus introduces himself to that church. It's specific. The, way, the introduction of Jesus to that church is specific for the message. And the promise that is given is specific to the message as well. So it, it's all tied together. Jesus could have just said to the church at Ephesus that, hey, I'm the one who knows all about your church. I walk among you. But notice what he says. I hold, I'm the one who holds the seven stars. By the way, I don't think I mentioned this at the start. At the end of chapter 1, the seven stars are these angels that are the messengers to the seven churches, and the seven golden lampstands are the churches. Jesus walks among the seven golden lampstands, he says. And notice pointing you back to what I'd said earlier about the church at Ephesus, as Jesus walks among the church at Ephesus and he sees they have completely lost their love. He says he will remove that lampstand as he walks among them. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you, I'm just going to read the introduction of G, how Jesus introduces himself and then let you draw the connection to the message um, either as we go or at a later time. To the church at Smyrna, he says, I am the first and the last who died and who came to life. To the church at Pergamum, he says, I am the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. To the church of Thyatira, I am the one who has the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Sardis, he says, I am the one who has the seven spirits of God, and the seven stars. And to Philadelphia, he says, I am the Holy One. This is the church that was weak, had little power. I am the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David. In other words, he has power. I am the one who opens now. Now, I am one, the one who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. And to Laodicea, is, I am the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So when we're feeling quite accomplished, and we're thinking that we've got things in life figured out, we've got church figured out, and we don't begin to, and we don't really live like, we, we would say in our heads that we know we need God, but the way we live probably doesn't reflect it. Jesus says, like he did to the Laodicean church, I'm the faithful and true witness, and he sees straight through the facade that we build up. He exposes it, which leads me to the next one. He says, I know. Each one of these, to each one of the churches, Jesus says, I know your works, and to two of my things, or to one, I think he says, I know where you dwell. Jesus knows I want you to think about that. Think about what Jesus knows. There's nothing that's hidden from Jesus. Not, nothing. Nothing about your personal life, nothing about our life as a church, nothing about my life is hidden. That thought either induces fear in us or it brings comfort. Let me refer us back to Hebrews 4.13. Put yourself in here. And no creature... Me, that's me or you, is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. 
That's being totally exposed. Nothing hidden. You're standing naked before God. It can be a little unnerving. Jesus sees the erased his history on your web browser. He sees the way you lashed out at your child or at your spouse. He sees the integrity or the lack thereof in your business, in my business. He sees the silent anger that eats away at me on the inside. He sees all of those. But not only does he see our works, the sin, those things that we try to hide, he knows the very thoughts and the intents of your heart as well, of my heart. It's all laid open before him. Think of those things, the self-loathing, the shame that we hide so deep in our hearts that just totally squelches us. He sees the pain of our loss. He knows it all. We're laid naked before him. And each one of these churches, everything that they've done, all the good, all the things that they have completely missed, everything that they're facing, Jesus says, I know it all. I know it all. This is true of individuals and as a church. He's seen the struggles that we've gone through as a church. He's seen it. He knows it. But you know what's amazing about our Jesus? He's okay with it. He comes and meets us right there in the middle of it. He knows our messed upness, if that's even a word. He knows how imperfect we are, and he meets us right there. Take a moment to listen to the words that Jesus speaks to some of these churches in the midst of their, unbroken, in their brokenness. He says, I know your toil. I know your patient endurance. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know your weakness. I see your faith. I see the way that you serve. These are words of one who loves, who cares, and who understands. And so Jesus knows it all, but he's perfectly safe for us to come, come to it. He invites us to come and bring it to him. Somehow we need to allow God to peel back the layers of protection that we wrap around our hearts. And again, I say this to us as individuals, but it reflects in our church as well, because our church is made up of individuals, right? So as God, we allow God to peel back those layers that we hide, those protection that we wrap around our hearts, and we let His love penetrate into those hidden places, those addictions that no one knows about, the fear that paralyzes us. To each one of us, He says this. This is, go back to that verse in Hebrews, how we stand naked before Him, completely exposed. Right after that, Jesus says this, for we don't have, or it says this about Jesus. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. And let me close with the promise. 
I read the promises that were written to each one of the churches and the promises that are true to us today, but it is only, it says, it's true to those who conquer, to those who overcome. Remember last Sunday, let me say this yet, how do we overcome? So that, that's, that's the question I'm left with. Who is the one who conquers? How do we conquer? Let's take us right back to the one who is I am who offers himself, Jesus. Last Sunday, Marcus mentioned one of the three things that he mentioned that is throughout the book of Revelation. If you read through Revelation, it's just chock full of Jesus being the true conqueror. He's the one who conquered Death, he, he conquered death and hell, life, everything in between, everything that we will ever face. Jesus conquered that for us. So if we, you and I are going to be conquerors to claim that promise, it's not going to be because I'm strong or you're tough or you look good or you make it sound right. It's because we find in our brokenness that we come to the true conqueror. And he tells us how to do that. <clears throat> The conquerors are the ones who stand before Jesus fully exposed. We recognize that we are absolutely exposed before Him. And instead of running away from Him, we run to Him. We run to Him in repentance. There's another theme throughout all seven churches is repent. Repent, repent, repent. I don't know what that word does to you, but I I bet it stirs something. It used to stir fear in me, big time. But it's a beautiful thing. Repentance is a beautiful thing because as we run to Jesus, we find grace and we find help in our times of need. And that is how we conquer, because He conquered. Listen to what it says in chapter 1. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and haze. And let me close with Revelation 12, 11. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives even unto death. Jesus gave his life. That's how he conquered. That's how we conquer, by not loving our lives even unto death. So what is the message for you and I today? What's the message for you? Listen, the message translation, he says this about he who has ears to to hear. Listen as the Spirit blows through the church. So as the Spirit blows through here this morning, listen, what's he saying to you? What's he saying to us? And then we respond. Because he is the I am. He knows and he invites us to come. So thank you for your attention. It's time to close. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're not going to have a... Are you guys... No? Not going to...